0: I'm Mary Ambrose, and this is the CG Podcast. Anyone interested in global trade is trying to figure out how to sell to China. Billions of customers is irresistible to these companies. It's also pretty irresistible to many countries. Some really need the trade. Afghanistan's President Ghani has been courting Chinese companies and officials. President Ghani uh, needs help, and he's looking to someplace closer than the United States uh, for that kind of help, both economically and on the security side. What do you think
1: China can offer?
0: Well, first of all, China can offer trade and investment. Other countries are looking for an alternative to trading with the U.S., like Mexico. And in 2001, it joined the World Trade Organization. Now, like Mexico, China was able to cheaply assemble products through their own massive factories and with preferential treatment under the WTO, it quickly surpassed Mexico as the United States' second largest import supplier. And within a few years, hundreds of maquiladoras were shut down, putting a strain on the Mexican economy. Although an economic rivalry still exists between China and Mexico, the two countries have in recent years shifted from competitors to partners. In 2013, China's President Xi Jinping spent three days in Mexico to negotiate agreements on energy, trade and education. And while everyone may be knocking on China's door, it's not going as smoothly as they'd hoped. A British analyst puts it this way.
1: I think the thing that we don't understand, and and I include myself in this, is that the
0: Cultural differences between China and ourselves are huge. Yeah. They're absolutely massive. Paul Bluestein agrees. He says that the global trading community does not really understand how the inclusion of China in these global trading agreements has fundamentally changed them. He argues that this amounts to a paradigm shift for world economic organizations. And he warns that if they don't adapt, they won't function effectively. Paul Blustein has written award-winning journalism about economic policy and world trading organizations for years. His latest book is about the International Monetary Fund. But today, we're getting a little sneak peek into his next book, his sixth, yes. (laughs) This one's going to be on the paradigm shift, which began when China joined the world markets. Paul's a senior fellow at CG and a very smart guy with a ringside seat. He watches China from his home in Tokyo. At the moment, he's in Washington, D.C. and joins us from there. Paul, China faced very serious terms when it wanted to enter the World Trading Organization, didn't it?
1: Yes. Uh, China was given harsher terms uh, and given fewer concessions than any country that's ever joined. Uh, and because the the Clinton administration, which was handling most of the tough part of the negotiations, recognized that um, you know China's an awfully big kind. It's the biggest, most populous country in the world. And uh, they were coming along very well. And they were already in the world trading system. They just weren't in the world trade organization. So the the terms under which they were obliged to join the WTO uh, were uh, extremely tough and took a lot of time to uh, to negotiate. And there were it almost fell apart a number of times. And uh, uh, so, yes, it was very tough.
0: So, what are the kinds of things that they were asked to do?
1: Well, the main thing was that they had to lower the barriers that they had that had been originally erected during the communist period uh after the communist revolution in nineteen forty nine um, those had been lowered pretty significantly because China had been gradually moving away from the sort of totalitarian communism that it had um you know at its peak but uh, but it still, they still had a lot of trade barriers, and it was a command economy with, uh, you know, with the government in Beijing giving a lot of orders to industries, five-year plans. Here's exactly how, you know, you're going to work, and here's exactly who you're going to buy from. And it was all a very insular market. So all of that had to be dismantled and, and a, you know, tremendous uh, uh, reform in the way the inner workings of the Chinese economy go, uh, the much more rule of law. Um, agreeing to not only lower tariffs but uh, to uh, all kinds of new regulations about the way foreign businesses would be treated when they go into China. So uh, that was that was the main goal. But it was also respecting intellectual property more, um, uh, and and treating foreign companies the way Chinese com- companies get treated because that's a that's a fundamental principle of the WTO. It's called national treatment. The idea is once once a product is inside. Uh, your uh, Your country's borders, once it's gotten through the tariff wall, uh, or once a company is, is, is working there, they're supposed to be treated the same as, as domestic companies. So that's a fundamental principle of the of the global trading system. So all that required a, a real uh, a lot of reform of the Chinese system.
0: If China agreed to all these things, what are they doing that is beyond the pale and kind of outside the practices of organizations like the WTO?
1: Well, the Chinese are very good about strictly obeying the rules, but their their economy is, first of all, it's it's quite opaque, um, and the uh, the uh, a lot of that communist uh, uh, infrastructure that I mentioned before, the way the the uh, uh, central government and even the provincial governments work uh, in conjunction very closely with the Communist Party, all sorts of planning uh, organizations, the, the state banks are. Very uh, closely controlled by the government. Uh, uh, the planning agency can dictate the way uh, utilities sell uh, power, uh, the way way banks lend money, uh, and at what price. So um, it's a it's not a command economy. It's it's it. China has moved very very far toward a market economy, but it it operates in a way that um, that 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 makes it possible for the ruling elites to, uh, you know, to not play really by the rules. And in recent years, starting – people date this from different different years. It's starting around 2010, 2011, the Chinese became much more – I'm uh, going in a direction that that you could call um, sort of techno-nationalist. You know, we're going to build up our national champions. We're going to we're going to. Uh, it's not just that we're going to beat the uh, other countries in in textiles and clothing and toys and all the things that the Chinese had had already been very good at because of their. Their l- low w- uh, labor costs and their super competitiveness, but they were gonna uh, they were gonna you know beat the pants off everybody in a lot of high tech industries as well uh, things that that uh, uh, advanced countries really care about and one way they could do that w- would be to go to these uh, when companies want to invest in the Chinese market say well you have to give us your technology if you want to do business here that uh, that's you know that's not there that goes against what. Uh, the, the way their market was supposed to open up and what they promised to do, but they, um, you, you know, again the, uh, the the way these things work, uh, if it's all done very quietly with a with a you know, so let's say a party communist party official, uh, quietly telling a foreign business, look, if it, if you know you can you can you can play ball our way, or maybe you know your business isn't going to be that great. The message can be sent in any number of ways, and foreign companies. Are very, you know, they can make they can make pretty good money in the Chinese market, but uh, but but it isn't as fair as they would like. So the, China began moving in this sort of direction. Uh, again, very careful to strictly obey um, m- most of the rules that they had signed up for, but uh, because of the opaque way in which their economy can operate, uh, not really <laughs> uh, according to the uh, the, the spirit.
0: I can certainly see how uh, any kind of handing over a proprietary technology would just be a deal breaker. You wouldn't want to. That's kind of the point of why you spent all that R&D money. But there's also this thing that you mentioned and referred to briefly, which is that even lower down, the totem pole, if that's from the top of the government, on a local level, you can decide... Maybe the foreign company isn't going to get as much access to electricity as the Chinese company, or maybe they're not going to have it all the time, or you can, you know, those sorts of things that were always decided by local party officials. That can also throw uh, a huge spanner in the works of a business, I would think.
1: Yes, I mean each of the, the the provinces or the big provinces where any any foreign company would want to operate have have fairly extensive. Um, uh, Mechanisms to to uh, to basically exercise control over the major inputs of uh, whether it's energy or uh, water or land. Uh, they can and 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 they have ways of of subsidizing the Chinese companies that they want to promote and uh, you know withholding some of those benefits from. From uh, some of the foreign companies. Uh, and now, I want to emphasize that, to some extent, you know, this happens. This happens in the U.S. States give uh, big uh, uh, preferential deals to companies to co- because they want them to come locate there. I mean, it's it's a way of you know promoting their local uh, to, to to promote the creation of jobs. So um, it's, it isn't as if China is u- completely unique. Uh, but it's just the the ma- massive extent to which um, they can operate these ways and the fact that the, their economy is so massive and has a huge impact on everybody else. They're now the world's second largest economy after all and by far the biggest trading uh, – uh, by far the biggest exporter.
0: Do you think it's a, a cultural thing as much as anything else, Paul? Do you think it's just that they're straight up about it? They're not sort of cloaking it in – um, baffle gab of the, well, we're trying to do the best for our people, that's why we're giving this great tax break to this foreign company, or not giving this great tax break to this foreign company, but always we're thinking of others. Do you think it's just because they're so clear-cut about what they're doing that that rattles places like the WTO?
1: Well, I think I think the Chinese are actually very good at pursuing what they perceive to be their their narrow national interest. They want to promote living standards among their people. The regime Knows that uh, that if they don't deliver that, that um, although you know this is it's hardly a democracy, they, they won't be voted out in the next election, right? But but they worry very much, uh, you know, quite understandably about losing the support of the Chinese people, and they so they want to deliver those rising livers, living standards, and they think that they have, you know, that their system um, uh, you know, provides the, the means for them to do it. now is there are there cultural aspects to this to some extent? because rule of law is is actually a fairly new um concept uh, in 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 Chinese culture. Um, but that's another story. I mean, I, I think the China you got to give the Chinese credit, um, for because uh, when they joined the WTO, they really—I mean, there were you know like universities set up and special programs set up to train people um, in in WTO rules. They really they did take it quite seriously because of the way their system operates. It they 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 uh, they are able to abide by the letter of the rules, but oftentimes not the spirit. For foreign companies, what many of them are complaining about is that the deck is completely stacked against them. Um, they're saying that um, uh, that uh, their technology is basically uh, appropriated, um, and that uh, they can't you know that their Chinese competitors get uh, get advantages if they don't get, that the authorities come in and, and uh, hit them with uh, antitrust. Uh, investigations when they haven't done anything really to violate any trust laws. That's a you know, I mean, it's a matter of perception. Of course, the Chinese say no, no, we 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 perceive any trust violation here. But uh, the there the, the perception of of uh, you know the American Chamber of Commerce uh, in in China the and 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 the Canadian Chamber of Commerce and the European Chambers of Commerce um, again the, these com- these groups used to be. Uh, big, uh, really cheerleaders. Um, uh, understandably so for uh, for uh, freer trade with China, saying that uh, this is a market of uh, unbounded opportunity, and um, and it will change, and they will adhere to the rule of law more. And they and um, uh, the you know the longer we're here, and the more longer things are open, the better things will get, and the more fairer it'll get. And uh, but in the past oh six seven years um, they've really changed their tune because the because Chinese policy has changed uh, the Chinese uh, see ways in which they can uh, exert government control in ways that advantage uh, uh, their domestic companies um, and they think they can do it in ways that don't violate. Uh, the obligations that they signed up for when they joined the WTO, and that's uh, and 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 often the WTO agrees when 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 they when China gets brought before the WTO. Sometimes China loses and they say, okay, we'll change. But often the WTO has said, no, that, you know, um, whatever you think of this practice, whatever it is, you know, whatever you think, uh, it's it's okay. China, the way China subsidizes a lot of its exporters, for example, uh, by doing so very indirectly, by giving uh, low-priced electricity, low, low-cost low loans. Uh, the WTO has said, well, if, if uh, it isn't clear that this is the government that's doing it, um, uh, if there isn't an obvious link to uh, to to the, to the government, then uh, it doesn't violate the rules. So uh, you know this is this is a big problem for for anyone competing with with Chinese companies. So that's the kind of problem that has caused foreign companies to change from being allies of of uh, of China to being very strong critics and saying, well, you know, we really need to take some some fairly drastic action. The WTO is going to have to. Uh, work on uh, developing rules that the Chinese can live with and that and that other member countries can live with that will make it possible for the rules to be uh, respected, not only in terms of the letter, but in terms of the spirit.
0: Do you think that, I mean, these big organizations always need to be updated. They always need to update the rules. Is there anything that you feel is there are any big holes that they really aren't addressing? It sounds to me like China's just driving through the loopholes, which is what yeah. lawyers do. So that doesn't seem so surprising to me. But are there areas in which the WTO has averted their gaze because they really don't know how to grapple with it?
1: Well, so the WTO, I mean, keep in mind, the WTO, I mean, it has a director general and they have a secretariat uh, so of international civil servants, about 650 people. Um and it's not as if they aren't aware of all this uh but they have no power to change anything uh it's the member countries it's the WTO is 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 a classic member driven organization uh and uh the, it has a very weak um bunch of of international civil servants i mean they're very good at what they do but they they don't have the power to change these things. The member countries have to agree to change the rules. I mean, it's understandable. After all, uh, by agreeing to change WTO rules, a country is agreeing to change their own internal rules and regulations. So the principle is that it's, it's got to be the member countries that do that. And and, and yes, they, they absolutely, I mean, I think they need to, to change the rules, for example, about about uh, about what what constitutes a an unfair subsidy uh, for for a domestic company uh, the Chinese have figured out very clever ways of subsidizing uh, some of their national champions uh, that foreign companies I think understandably perceive as unfair the- Chi- and the Chinese have been brought to the w to tribunals at the wto and the w wTO tribunals have said well you know, you, we may not like this, but uh, we have no rule against this. So uh, this is a—I mean, it's not just a loophole; it's a—it's a great big loophole that, um, in a in a perfect world, I think um, you know we'd like to think that countries could come together and figure out how to how to close it. But it's very difficult. What do you, then? What do you give China? Because uh, China's not going to say, "Oh yeah, go ahead and close this loophole that we've been driving through." Because after all, we're nice guys. I mean, the Chinese perceive their national interest. As, as again, is as building up the living standards of their people. So they're not willing to give that kind of thing up, uh, understandably. So uh, it's, it's a real conundrum.
0: Paul Bluestein is a senior fellow at CG, an award winning journalist and an author writing a lot about international economics and trade. You can find his articles on the CG website, and that is C I G I online.org. CG, the Center International Governance Innovation, is a nonpartisan think tank. I'm Mary Ambrose.